Well, we continue our series this morning that we began just last week in the New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church. So open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. And the title of this series is Our Steadfast Hope. That theme will appear uh, in very specific terminology. It also will appear through the truth of that forward expectation that is ours as the people of God for the return of Jesus Christ. We are people of hope because of what God has done, what he is doing right now, and what he will do. Now, today's look in chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, uh, will pick up several different themes, but they're all related to the work that God was doing in that very big and important city called Thessalonica in Paul's day, but it has direct bearing on us, themes of gratitude and affirmation. Uh, themes you'll even see as we read through this in just a moment uh, regarding Paul's prayer. Actually, the team he was a part of uh, were just continually praying in thanksgiving to God for what they had seen happening. And then there's a forward look. Even as their ministry had uh, resulted in the conversion of many people in Thessalonica, that church was becoming a sounding board for the gospel in their entire region. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we read it, I I want to begin kind of with this little picture for you. Uh, Spring is here, and it's not quite butterfly season, but it will be before long. And this process we refer to as metamorphosis really is borderline miraculous. Now, I won't use the term miracle uh, to describe this because it's actually just part of God's good and wise created order. But when you think of how a living creature on the right side of the screen goes through a process where it really does seem to become a wholly different kind of creature, the word metamorphosis just just doesn't quite capture what's really happening. Yes, there's change of a really radical kind. Yes, there is a process through which all of this happens. And yes, you can see some faint resemblances between uh, the butterfly on the left and the caterpillar on the right by way of of coloring, Uh, but beyond that, if you laid that caterpillar and butterfly side by side without knowing uh, the the process of metamorphosis, you would say these are not the same creature. I think God has given us a beautiful illustration of what actually happens in the life of a person, in the lives of people like you and me, When we actually come face to face with the living God, we hear his divine summons to faith. We hear the divine call to repent of our sins and turn away from one lifestyle to another. Metamorphosis would be a word that we could use to describe what happens to individuals who come face to face with the living God and say, I'm done with the old me. I want the new me that he offers. Keep that little picture in mind as we work through this particular passage of Scripture this morning because what God is offering for all of us is a powerful transformation. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1, and you follow along as I read verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, 
that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. We give thanks to him for that. Would you join me in praying as we ask God's blessing over our time in the word now? Father, your word holds many promises and they are all true and they will all be fulfilled in time. Many of them have already come to pass in the first appearing of Jesus Christ and how we thank you for the fulfillments. We also pray that according to your word that you gave through Isaiah long ago, that your word as it goes out of your mouth and by your spirit's attendance today, even through the imperfect preaching in this place and in churches all around the world, that it would accomplish everything that you have purposed it to do, that it will succeed in the things for which you are sending it. The rain the snow that we have received this year uh, are producing amazing effects. And we love to see what happens in the physical realm. Now, even as you likened the purpose and power of your word to rain and snow, come, Lord God, and do all your holy will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to verse 2 with me and notice, first of all, this prayer of gratitude that almost spills out of Paul. We give thanks, he says. And when he says we, remember, there's actually a team of, of three. It's the Apostle Paul, it's Silvanus, or you can shorten his name to Silas, and then Timothy. So those three were the first to arrive in Thessalonica, begin just grassroots evangelism that gave birth to a little church, and just three weeks into that, persecution and opposition erupted, and so that team had to be hustled out of Thessalonica. But there was lingering effect. And so Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. The occasion of this prayer of gratitude, uh, as he goes on to say, mentioning you in our prayers, um, seems to be just a uh, a steady source of grateful prayer. But look at the next couple of phrases here because there's a source uh, of this prayer of gratitude that I want you to look at. I just recalled the brief history, how they were there for just a few weeks and then uh, hustled out, uh, as it were. And when we get to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians and come to verse 5, Paul's going to reflect on how his heart was just so uh, torn up, if you will, wondering, how are they doing? Is, is the word of God 
uh, taking root in their hearts? Are they going to persevere in the faith? And he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Timothy goes back, spends time with them, and then comes and gives a report, and here is what the report included. Look at verse 3. Remembering or calling to mind before our God and Father, and there are three parts of this, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, or that is your persistence or perseverance even. And remember Thessalonica was experiencing a kind of persecution and opposition. So it wasn't easy to be a believer. Now let's unpack those three phrases that Paul says. I'm remembering these things in particular about you. I've so uh, appreciated and been helped by what the Scottish Bible scholar and author F.F. Bruce has written uh, of these three particular aspects of Paul's gratitude. Faith, if you will, faith is based on the assurance that God has acted for his people's salvation in Christ. And Paul says, out of that faith, you have begun to work. And then he notes love, and this is where F.F. Bruce speaks of this love as the present and continuing relationship between God and his people through Christ. And then hope, he writes, is bound up with the conviction that he who has begun a good work in them will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, remember that Christian hope And and this is so important for us to remember. Christian hope is actually a confident expectation that good is coming. It's not, you know, as some of you said, I I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon because we have plans to, you know, have Mother's Day dinner outside or we just wanted to be in the backyard or, or go up into the mountains. I hope it doesn't rain. And when we use hope in that way, we're not certain as to what the weather pattern will be this afternoon. But Christian hope has no uncertainty in it. No, as a matter of fact, the hope rises out of the certainty of who God is, of what he has done, of what he will do. And so you begin to put those three things together and you see that faith is tied to Christ and is specifically his death on the cross. The love that we share is a relationship with God and even one another. And our hope is that he will return in the clouds as was promised by Christ himself. Paul says, as I I call to mind what is taking in Thessalonica, I, I am filled with gratitude because out of that faith, love, and hope, there is great work that is underway. You people are busy in the way that God would want you to be busy. You're living your life for the purposes and to the ends for which Jesus died. And there is a steadfastness, a perseverance that characterizes you. And that perseverance rises from the hope that Christ is who he says he is and that he will come again as he has promised. That would give anybody joy, wouldn't it? Give you joy to see your kids walking in that way. It would give you joy to see your friends living for purposes like these. And it would give you great joy personally to find that kind of consistent motivation for living life. Some of you have actually put faith in self to this point. And I dare say that you struggle to remain motivated because there are those days where if you're really honest about self and what is going on, you would say, I, 
I don't really have reason to have a lot of faith in me today. Or maybe you've put faith in other earthly relationships, a spouse, a child, a parent, a neighbor. You're going to be disappointed at some point. There's only one resting place for faith that will secure your heart and generate this kind of motivation that produces this, this kind of labor and work. It's faith in a Savior who died on a cross for you. There's only one kind of love that is secure enough to sustain you through the hardships of, of life. And for all the blessing that earthly relationships provide for us and a kind of love that's there, there's no perfect human love that moves between us in, in any of the relationships we have, but to be in a right relationship with the God who created you, to know that you are safe and secure forever, as we were just singing a moment ago, that'll produce some genuine motivation. Well, these are the things that are in Paul's heart as he gives thanks for this little group of people in a big city named Thessalonica. Their prayers of gratitude. I want you to see in the second place their affirmations of God's great work. Look at, look at the next verse. Verse four begins with, for we know. We're gonna come back to that in a moment because it's tied to something. But then he says, brothers loved by God. That is, you who are loved by God. And he uses a little, a little verb tense. We don't wanna get bogged down in that. But it has kind of a backwards look to God's love that began at a certain point, but it has present significance and impact right now. You could think in terms of the cross. It'd be a beautiful illustration of it. Jesus died at a moment in history, but the death on the cross has lasting impact to this present moment. The cross changed everything in the course of human history. The empty tomb changes everything in the course of human history. Well, Paul is referring to the love of God, more broadly speaking, as something that began to flow toward people like the Thessalonians, and there's present impact and benefit. What does it mean that we are presently loved by God? What a privilege. God loved you from the start, loves you in the present, and if, if you connect those two dots together, I, I love to think about trajectory. You know, if we, if we push a couple of, you know, red pins in a map and we say, well, we've traveled, you know, from Salt Lake City and we've made it as far as Omaha uh, and, and we, you know, draw a line between those two and, and then we kind of line it up and maybe, you know, stand down at this map and we look that way and we go, what's the trajectory? Well, we're on a path to keep going east. If God loved you then and loves you now, what's the trajectory? He will love you to the end. Brothers loved by God. You know, this is also an important reminder for a church that is struggling. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica. It wasn't easy to stand, you know, in the, in the public square, as it were, and say, we are followers of a man who was crucified on a Roman cross and who, as you've heard reported, rose miraculously from the dead. It's not easy in our day, is it? But when you know that the God who is behind that story loves you personally, it strengthens you. We'll go back to verse four and let's look though at what Paul is, is getting to. For we know that he has chosen you. 
Now, this is terminology that appears throughout the New Testament. We encountered it in the book of Romans, a couple of different places, where Paul was telling the Romans, you've been chosen by God for salvation. He referred to Israel as a nation, as the elect people of God. And I know some of you already are a little nervous. Like, are we about to start a theological debate? Are we going to identify who the Calvinists in the room are and who the Arminians are? No. Uh, I don't care to go there, partly because that's not where Paul is trying to take this, but he does want to remind these dear believers that there was an eternal purpose behind what they are experiencing at this moment. God really did make a choice or a determination, and when you encounter this truth, whether it be in Romans or passages just like here, sometimes it does refer to the chronology of it, as it were, or the eternal purpose behind it. Paul will mention this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, the second letter that he writes to this same church. And there it's interesting that he connects God's choice of them for salvation with the call to repent and believe. And you very often see that go go together. So Paul isn't trying to start an argument between one theological uh, commitment and another about the doctrine of choice or election as we also refer to it. Rather, he is strengthening the faith of people who are enduring affliction, who are suffering for the cause of Christ, and reminding them that God's eternal work of salvation, which includes his choice of them for salvation, is manifesting itself in an indisputable way. That's what we need to focus on. Every once in a while, somebody will do some reading in in this whole doctrine of election and get kind of hung up and even, and I've had people say this to me before, well, I don't know if I'm elect. Well, God never asked you to figure that out in advance. He actually says to you, repent of your sins and believe. Now, Paul's coming in after the fact saying, you know how we know you're chosen? Look at the text. He's gonna say, we can observe four things in your life that demonstrate to us you have been chosen. What are they? Well, look at verse five. Because, here's how we know you're chosen. Because our gospel came to you, first of all, not only in word, that is, it was intelligibly communicated to the Thessalonians. They preached it. But also in power. And this is a term that refers to supernatural power. It's effective power. And then the third thing speaks of the Holy Spirit who showed up as the word was being proclaimed There is divine power, and he's manifesting his presence to them, uh, and it's having an effect. It made me think of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, where Paul said to another first century church, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, there's a similar thing that is taking place here in Thessalonica. Gospel mission does not rely on rhetorical techniques or the powers of human persuasion. Some of you are still hesitant to just share the gospel with a friend or family member because you feel like you've got to make the perfect presentation. There's nothing in the New Testament that says perfect presentations of the gospel produce perfect decisions for Jesus and his gospel. No, we're just supposed to speak it out to talk about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how our lives have been transformed, and we'll actually see this kind of in a, in a very personal way for the Thessalonians here in a moment. And you know, honestly, if you think about our own culture, much as the Thessalonians' culture was, I mean, just think about Salt Lake itself with its 
uh, the present day philosophies of life and worldviews and, and there is important commerce underway right here uh, in our city, people are hustling to make a living and make ends meet. There are a variety of religions and different worship practices all around us. That's exactly what Thessal- Thessalonica was like. A variety of opinions and perspectives uh, and such. It almost seems ridiculous that we would stand in the middle of a culture like this and say, can we tell you about an individual who came to earth 2,000 years ago? And by the way, he was fully God. He became fully man, lived about 33 years, died on a cross, rose miraculously from the grave three days later, ascended on high, and has promised to come again. And if you put your faith and trust in him, turn from your sins to him, he will give to you the gift of eternal life and take you to be in heaven with him one day. Are you smoking something? But that is our message. That's why the Holy Spirit has to attend it. Because when he attends it, the, third, the fourth phrase that Paul uses that is demonstration that they were chosen by God in an age previous is that the Holy Spirit brought full conviction. The Thessalonians, like so many of you, heard that message and at some point went, it's true, I believe. And so we continue to offer that simple message. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, it's by the open statement of the truth that we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You know what gives us hope to share the gospel privately or to preach it in a setting like this or, or to stand in an in a, you know, enormous arena somewhere as some preachers do is that the Holy Spirit would arrive and through his, the exertion of divine power, bring to life a dead conscience where they would go from disbelief to full belief, full conviction. And there's no human explanation for that. Paul says this is the evidence that God chose you for salvation. Well, let's look very quickly at the impact of the Thessalonian story, as we might refer to it. He goes on to say, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, but look at verse six, because the Thessalonians themselves began to change, and this is where metamorphosis continues. First of all, they were imitators of the Lord and this little team. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is, you, you began to copy the very words and behaviors of, another, uh, of, of this little group of people, and ultimately, they were just imitating the Lord himself. Now, now not as copycats, but, but the lives they begin to live are actually the direct result of an internal change. Look at what he says next. For you received the word, that is, they were readily accepting the message proclaimed to them, even in much affliction. We talked, touched on this already, tribulation and suffering, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There's further evidence that the, the Spirit of God is behind this. Where does that kind of joy come from when it's, Hard to believe, hard or hard to express your belief. Well, that internal delight and happiness that they had found is, is spilling out. They were imitators. Here's the second thought, though. In verse 7, they became an example to follow, a pattern, if you will. They're imitators, but there's something in them that should also be imitated. And what is that? Well, Paul, first of all, says to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, 
geography matters, and sometimes it can be really helpful just to expand your imagination and say, if God could do it for them, what about us? So you see Thessalonica kind of in the middle of the screen, right? That's present-day Greece, uh, to, to kind of uh, put it in, in perspective. And I remember Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had hustled over there from Philippi because they stirred up trouble there as well. I mean, that, that's, that's the way it goes. They show up, typically go to the synagogue. They begin to dialogue in the gospel, try to persuade people to believe. Some people believe. Other people get angry, run them out of town, beat them up, throw them in prison, all kinds of things. So they've come. So that little group of three came to Thessalonica from Philippi. The Thessalonians, as Paul is saying here, received this gospel message with great joy, Great full conviction, as he says. And now in verse 7, as he is saying that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, that is this same gospel message that you received, you are now circulating audibly. It's resonating from your church in Macedonia and Achaia. And your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So it's spreading First to Macedonia, north of them. It's spreading south of them into Achaia. And then he just says everywhere. Where's everywhere? Everywhere around them. You just can't contain this message. The transformation that the Lord brings about in our hearts is not just something we are commanded to share. It, it, when the Lord really begins to work in your heart, you can't contain it. You don't want to contain it. Verse 9, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So it seems that the same way the Thessalonians received the gospel with great joy, saying, oh, yes, this is true, this is life-changing, as they began to share it, others were responding as well. And that brings us, I know I hustled through some things, but I, I want you to picture this, if you will. The Lord's the one who got this thing rolling he comes to earth and he grabs 12 men, one of whom is the son of perdition, Judas. After his resurrection, he has 11, gathers them up, gives them what we refer to as the Great Commission, says go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Oh, well, baptizing them first, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you wherever you go, even to the end of the age. That's his promise. And those 11 scatter. Paul's not even among that first group. As a matter of fact, at the point that these 11 scatter, he's so angry about this because he's on the other side of, uh, of a religious worldview and, and begins to persecute, murder, uh, and, and abuse those who are followers of Jesus. But then Jesus appears to him personally and, and Saul, as he was known then, falls on his face before the living Christ and says, what would you have me to do? Jesus commissions him. Other people like Silvanus hear the gospel and respond. A young guy named Timothy, who's, who's from a, a mixed spiritual family. Father is a Gentile who apparently doesn't believe, but mother, uh, his mother is not only Jew uh, by birth, but a follower of Jesus, and he becomes a disciple. That little team gathers up, and those apostles uh, make their way through Philippi to Thessalonica. The Thessalonians hear it, then they in turn begin to share and spread. These are transformed people. 
and the metamorphosis cannot be contained. The impact of the Thessalonian story in one respect continues to this day. And this is what Paul brings it back to that because they were a transformed people, others were transformed. What does gospel transformation look like? Look at verse 10. And we come to the end of this portion. Paul's rejoicing in this, but this is a really good summary of gospel transformation for us personally. The end of verse 9, he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's unpack that in just a couple of minutes here. The key words in this, in, in this first portion are, they turned. And you can see the two, the, the, the two uh, points turning, first of all, he says, to God. But to turn to God meant they turned from idols. So these are religious people. They've just been worshiping something other than the true God. Some of you would say, well, you know, I, I'm, I don't worship the, the God of the Bible, but I'm also not an idolater. You know, you don't have to have a little pantheon in your home of idols. You don't have to have a little figurine on the mantle of your fireplace that you bow down before every day to actually be an idolater. Idolatry at its heart is substituting anything in the place of the God who created you and died on the cross to rescue you. You could be your own idol. A relationship could be an idol. Your marriage, your best friend, your career could be your idol. The big boat in your neighbor's driveway could be your idol. There are a million options, but we're all worshipers. And even those who say, well, I'm not a religious person. Oh, you are. You just haven't come face to face with the fact that you're worshiping somebody or something in the place of the God who gave you life. And when these Thessalonians heard the good news about Jesus Christ, they recognized that whatever pantheon they had set up was false. And they turned from all of that and they turned to God. And did you see the next part of that? I know you do, but let me just highlight that. To serve the living and true God. And that's what God calls all of us to this day. He gave you life and he wants you to give your life back to him. That's what gospel transformation looks like in its essence. Thessalonians went through that and said, this is amazing. Let's go share it. I want you to think for a second, why are we here? And I don't mean like in, on planet Earth at this moment in history. I mean, why, why are we here? This little assembly that we call Gospel Hope in a place called Riverton. Why, why, why are we here? Even you guests who've assembled with us. I know some of you have come from other churches like this, but why are we here? Well, because God's work moves forward unfailingly, and it has for the past 2,000 years in this way because we need to add two more boxes. And the green box there represents about 2,000 years of history. Some of you may have even been taught that there was this great falling away and that the gospel was lost for you know, a, many, many years. It's not accurate because generation by generation and church by church, 
as the metamorphosis, as the transformation of the gospel continued in the lives of individuals and they assembled Lord's Day after Lord's Day to worship and then scattered in the week to go about their ordinary business as they were a a sounding board for this gospel of transformation. More and more people believed and country by country and community by community heard the gospel and some responded and some believed and some like us said, well, we should gather too. And here we are. The question is, what's the next box to be added? I mean, what role would gospel hope play in this great, uh, th- this great relay race of the gospel? We were handed the b- baton by previous generations, and there are people coming after us that we need to place the baton of the gospel into their hands and say, please believe, turn from your idols to the living God and serve him with us. This isn't just for Thessalonica that they would be this sounding board of the gospel. This is for us because this is God's plan. What an opportunity. I know some of you feel like, who am I? Like I, what, what, what could I possibly do? First of all, just live it. Just serve this living God day by day and then just share it. Tell people about how he's changed you. Tell them about how he's changing people here in our little assembly. Invite them to come. Invite them to your dinner table on a Thursday night. Be confident that God's plan, which goes into eternity past, right? Because he was choosing then. But his plan is that the message would be proclaimed, divine power and the presence of the Holy Spirit would attend it, And the Spirit himself is the one who brings full conviction. It's not up to you to persuade. It is up to you and me to open our mouths and say, Jesus is Lord. So let's do it. And let's look expectantly and hopefully 